Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm Miriam Anzevin, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Ashley Jacobs. Oh my God, Miriam, I am so excited for our guest today. We are speaking with one of my favorite Instagrammers and chefs, Jake Cohen. Jake is a food writer, recipe developer, culinary content creator, and the self-described nice Jewish boy behind the New York Times bestseller, Jewish, a cookbook, reinvented recipes from a modern mensch. You might also recognize his name from any number of food websites and magazines, including Feed Feed, Savor, Time Out New York, and Tasting Table. Jake is also a pun champion, acclaimed Shabbat dinner host, and just awesome. I'm fangirling. Jake, hi. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Vibe of the Tribe. Your first cookbook, Jewish Reinvented Recipes from a Modern Mensch, just came out last month, Mazel Tov. Can you tell us a little bit about how you first got into cooking professionally and your journey to this moment? Yeah, I mean, that, yeah. Can, can you just uh, tell me your entire life, start to finish, uh, all that stuff? Just, yeah. Just narrow down your entire life experience. Food was always it. It was always I, what I knew I wanted to do. I, I kind of fell in love with it in high school. I was like just enamored with everything on the Food Network. And I started throwing dinner parties for my friends. And I was just always obsessed with the ability of food as a as a community builder. So I applied exclusively to the Culinary Institute of America. It was the only college I applied to. Got in, did that, worked in Michelin star restaurants in the city and just kind of knew that owning a restaurant or running a restaurant wasn't like the end goal. So I switched to media in which I spent the last seven, eight years running test kitchens, writing for different print, digital, social publications. And and that eventually kind of corresponded with my relationship. My husband and I, when we first met, it was this kind of fascinating dynamic because I'm Ashkenazi Jewish, he's Persian Iraqi Jewish. And our definitions of Jewish food were completely different. So as we began to explore each other's food cultures, while at the same time exploring like what our Jewish narrative was going to be, we started hosting Shabbat, which was something that neither of us actually had growing up. And we fell in love with it. And that's pretty much what I kind of realized I had to write about and pitch the book, wrote it, Times bestseller, all that good stuff. It's amazing. Can't wait to get my hands on a copy. It sounds amazing. I've been following you on Instagram for a really long time. I'm just really excited to talk to you more about the book and your whole history. The last part of the title, you uh, call yourself a modern mensch. So what is a modern mensch? What does being a modern mensch mean to you? So I think that there's it can mean whatever you want it to mean. For me, modern mensch is referring to the fact that self-identifying as anything Jewish, I think is not very in vogue. I think even just self-identifying as a Jew, if you think about every, if you think about labels of, of people being anything, the one that sounds the angriest is Jew. Like, like he's a Jew. Like it just doesn't sound like pleasant or, or, just full of love and acceptance. So in, in general, I, I think self-identifying as a mensch, which some people don't like because it's, it's all that stuff. But but to me, I think so much of what I do is rooted in 
being a good person and doing positive things and modern mitzvahs throughout the day, mitzvot. So to me, I, I think it's a uh, synonym for nice Jewish boy. Love it. During the pandemic, so many people turn to cooking family recipes or comfort food as a kind of self-care to help us all get through this time. Have you found there's a go-to comfort food that you have been cooking during the pandemic? It's funny because if if you had to if you had to lock in one thing that every single person started making during the pandemic, what would you say? I would say either like babka or challah. Well, I mean, and oh, and banana bread right. and sourdough. Like You're, there were phases. That's what. All right, so, <laughs> yeah. no, you, you hit it on the wall. So my answer would be sourdough. I feel like everyone was doing sourdough. When everyone turned to sourdough, I turned to challah. And challah was something that I would make on like special occasions, but never like, I don't know, all the time. And at the beginning of the pandemic to now, every Friday, I bake challah. And I think it is the most magical thing I've brought into my life. My family loves it. I think there's something so important that every Jewish person should know how to bake a challah. I, I just think it's not that hard. It's just full of love and attention and understanding your dough and and it's meditative i just think it's everything something that i have really enjoyed is looking at the way you use social media to share your recipes and the stories behind them to put them in this personal authentic context so in your you know your tiktok and your instagram videos you showcase so many real moments from your personal life. Uh, you show the moment when your mom holds the cookbook in her hands for the very first time, which was beautiful. You show your mother-in-law cooking this amazing like saffron rice dish um, that had come to her in a dream or something. Um, <laughs> but you also frame your recipe directions in hilarious ways that wink at pop culture. So how has social media shaped the landscape for uh, for you, for the next generation of chefs, what do you think? I mean, I just grew up on it. We grew up on yeah. it. I'm sorry, acting like you're, you're not part of this. But at the end of the day, it's like I have always had an obsession with pop culture. Whatever the zeitgeist was in terms of, of popular TV, I was in it. When it came to reality television, I came of age. Literally, my sister and I would rush home from Hebrew school on Sunday because VH1 would air the episodes of Flavor of Love that were coming out that night during the day. So we would get home from Hebrew school just in time to catch the new episode of Flavor of Love. And I just think from there, it, it continued. Then the Housewives, and then all this stuff, and now social media. I think that the idea around fame, the idea around popularity has always been something that fascinated me that I've always wanted to unlock. And in terms of how I've approached it, it's as simple as of the fact that I think there are people who are meant to be on these platforms and people who are not and trying to be on these platforms. Everything I do is very authentic to myself. I reference those things because those are the things I like in the same way that people, another one that everyone loves is, is I found this one pasta shape in vodka sauce. My, my sister and I had, had figured out like, this is literally Nicole Kidman's wigs in the undoing <laughs> was this pasta and people like went crazy over the Nicole Kidman pasta. And to me, it's like, I, that, it's not reach. It's just, it's something funny, some funny little quip that I, I found. And, and I think that I love, social because of the fact that it can be these little ephemeral vignettes that just get thrown out to the world and then I move on. I have very like uh, a very short attention span and I, I don't need to be doing one thing for a very long time and I, I find interest in something whether it be like fancy avocado toasts or 
challah braids or, or this or that. And I do a bunch of it. And then I, then I move on to whatever is interesting me next. And I would say the only thing that I really stick to long term is Jewish food. So let's let's talk about that a little bit. You mentioned, I think, in one of the videos that working on this cookbook was one of the most difficult things, if not like the most difficult thing you had taken on and done. And now you are then turning around and using your experience to host Ask Me Anythings. AMA sessions for people to ask you questions about what work goes into the process. What are some of the most important lessons that you have learned during the whole publication process? So the, the whole process, like start to finish, people don't understand what an undertaking it is. It's two years between selling it, writing it, shooting it, editing it, promoting it, non-stop. And I would say the hardest part of everything was promo and marketing because it's coming out to the world and you have people who are judging your work and responding to it in both positive and negative ways. And people think like, oh, it's so great to just get like all of these incredible notes and responses. And, and there's something that people don't understand that it's very emotional. Yeah. Even getting messages, I, I've gotten hundreds of messages from people who are like, your introduction made me cry. I have I just related to it so much in terms of my relationship to my identity being Jewish or my boyfriend is Jewish and I'm finally able to now connect with him on, on this way and cook for him and all of these things. And they're incredible and they're all things that are, are, are good, but it's a lot to take on emotionally and people don't understand that. And also just the idea of being on, it's like, yeah, there I, I'm, I try when I'm on social media, it's typically because I'm positive and, and, feeling good. And when social kind of turns left and it gets sour and starts to make me feel pretty shitty, I, I, I have to step away. And you don't see that because I'm not going to be on social media talking about me being sad because that's what's making me sad. And, and I think that there is that balance that goes through everything. I think the most important thing is in terms of a lesson is to bet on yourself. Mm. I had so many kind of things along the way in which I put my foot down and was not going to take no for an answer. And those are the things that I think made that this book such a success. And if I had given in to the people who were saying, let's do this or let's not do this, then if the book wouldn't have been exactly how I envisioned it and I needed it to come out exactly how I saw it in my head. We're all content creators here, but you are at another level, especially when it comes to puns. Let my pizza go, apple of my pie, slice girls, one of my favorites, just the chip for chocolate chip cookies, and even your website, Wake and Jake. I mean, come on. What are your secrets to being a pun champion? There is no secret. It's just like, they just come to me. I just think about it. Like, what am I doing? It's like, all right, then I open up Spotify, then I go to IMDb, and then it's like, okay, they either come or they don't come. And then, then I, I, I walk away for a second. But to me, I, I just think that the puns originated and have stuck around because at my core, I don't take myself very seriously. I don't take anything I do very seriously. I don't think anyone should, because again, I'm not curing cancer. I didn't cure COVID. I make food and recipes and there's value to that that it adds to society but I always want to be like real with what I'm doing I think there's something very important with the work I'm doing in terms of again subliminal Judaism and making <laughs> Jewish things fun and, and relevant and something to be celebrated like again something that I, I have brought up a few times in this process is the book is bigger than me and I don't want to claim 
it all just as like myself or my work because this is a representation of myself, but through the lens of everything I've inherited from this community. So like me making this, this book becoming a New York Times bestseller, great for me as an author, 100%. But more importantly, it's so much more meaningful because it's, I'm just one person. All I can do is just represent me, however, to see, to see people like excited about Jewish food, like that's everything. So part of the magic of your social media feed and also from the photos I've seen in the book are how incredible the visuals are of the food that you're cooking. And a lot of people out there, they're they're not really producing a cookbook. They're you know, taking images for their Instagram or whatever, but they still want to be able to showcase really great images, not professionally taken, but they want to be able to show that thing they worked so, so, so hard to create in literally the best light. Because everyone wants to say this, look, look, it's delicious. And this image represents how delicious it is. You can't taste it through the screen, but visualize it. What is your secret to taking just incredible photos of food that makes you really covet that meal? I think there people overthink it a lot. Really, it's it, the, the one thing is like I, I use an iPhone for everything. There's no special camera like it's iPhone. And then you just want to use natural light. Mm. Take it to the window. That, that's it. If it's nighttime, it's not going to look good. Don't try to fake it. Just own it. And, and that's as simple as it is. And I think people do eat with their eyes and we are in a visual, very visual society in which that's something to consider. It was something that was very important for me with this book was like, one of the things that I put my foot down on was that I needed a photo for every recipe. Yes. There was, I was not going to be, I hate when cookbooks don't have photos for every recipe. And I wanted it to look I wanted it to look like like next level. I wanted like the Allison Roman treatment. I wanted it to be something in which people are going to be like, "Oh, that's from the shtetl." No, 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 that's from Brooklyn, and that's important. I think for for a new generation of people to to find find passion. And one of the things that I was like proudest of is, is my kasha varnishka is pretty much like is transformed into like a weeknight pasta dish, mm. and to see people just like make kasha on a random tuesday like like oh tonight we're having jewish food like that when do you hear that oh we're ordering thai oh i'm making i'm making italian I'm making pasta when does anyone say outside of passover i'm making jewish food right it doesn't happen i and don't I think know a lot of it comes i love kasha varnish personally like of this course. was like a like growing up that was like the thing my mom cooked and she's like here have your shtetl peasant food and it was like, <laughs> connect with your ancestors through this dish. Um, so yeah. that, that's really, really just so funny because, and I also, I can't believe that the idea was not to have an image for each recipe. How would we know what it's supposed to look like then? It's common in a lot of cookbooks. Yeah. How do we know what the ideal outcome <laughs> looks like? Truly, truly, truly. It's, again, it's because it is expensive and mm. people don't want to pay yeah. and at the end of the day i know my worth yeah and i know what i bet on and i can tell you right now i fought for in book one there will not be any other book without that in my contract speaking of the book being bigger than you people saying i want to have jewish food on a random tuesday in your words your cookbook is a love story it's a family tree it's me at my core you yeah. shared before that your grandma was a hidden child in the Holocaust and your mm -hmm. mother-in-law was forced out of Iran, just like my mom's side of the family was forced out of Egypt. Countless wars and attacks and anti-Semitism made Jews scatter across the globe, hence the 
Jewish diaspora, and this is ingrained in our collective culture as a people. How has your family's Jewish history shaped you? The funny thing is, it's not really funny, but like, I think that our generation was so, so sheltered from it. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that we are two generations away from the old country. The first generation, our parents' generation are are first gen Americans in general. On my dad's side, my grandmother was first gen American. But when you think of the concept of inherited trauma and how prevalent it is in all of our families and the way that my mother's generation has internalized it. And we are the first that really get to look at Judaism without resentment, maybe, is the word. I I just think that there is this idea behind what it meant to assimilate in this country and what it meant to be Jewish or to be not Jewish enough that you would stand out, but also Jewish enough that you weren't shunned from the community. And that really kind of collected our Judaism to like shul and the high holidays. And other than that, nothing. And to me, we saw such a loss of stories, history, dishes, recipes, everything that I think needs to be preserved, slowly, slowly leave. And I think the generation above us, because of that resentment, there was a level in which so much of it wasn't preserved. And now I am feeling like I'm on a race to get as much down as possible before, unfortunately, that generation that is connected leaves us. And it's difficult. It's really, really difficult. And I'm doing the exact same for my husband's family, in which there are so many recipes that still only the women who lived in Iraq make it. And to think about like everything that you said about your mother and about my grandmother and my mother-in-law, all these people, we will never know that kind of hardship, hopefully. And there's a lot to, oh, well, you don't know people's things. And yes, everyone is unique and has their own stories and, and potential hardships. But we're talking about war, revolution, and genocide. And to not have to go through that, I do think that it's like, I find a responsibility to save those stories, have these recipes preserved, whether for me or for future generations, because we're a link. And what our parents' generation did not understand is that by not passing it on, we are stealing it from generations to come to have that connection to our origins. And especially as we continue to marry and intermarry, whether that be with Gentiles or with different communities throughout the diaspora, the amount of recipes and stories, it's just like snowballing. And that's why it's so, so, so crucial. It's the, That's a, such an interesting part of the assimilation process for any cultural community. And I really love what you're saying about understanding and trying to preserve the history and stories, not just from your own background, but from your husband's. So Ashley, for my birthday, she gave me this book of cooking from across the diaspora because I wanted something that that spoke to that because if you don't understand how varied the Jewish experience is, how varied Jewish food is, you'll never understand the diversity and history of of the Jewish people. I would love to hear a little bit more about how you've 
taken recipes and learned recipes from your husband's side of the family? So I, I think the, the funny thing about that is it seems like novel and that's because we're in America. Yeah. And when you think about like America, we are the predominantly the majority Ashkenazi Jews. Right. And we've been able to really preserve Ashkenazi food culture. But then if you look at the other side, look at Israel. Right. Israel, different representation of the diaspora and different types of blending. You see something like sabich, yeah. which is like one of the most popular pitas, which is rooted in the Sabbath breakfast of Iraqi Jews, a fried eggplant and hard boiled eggs, which is typically served with amba, this pickled mango sauce that Iraqi Jews started making because of their influence in running the spice trade with India. But then when it came to Israel, when it got stuffed into a pita, sometimes you'll even find falafel thrown in or tahini thrown in. And these are things that were not traditional in Iraq, but became now traditional to this dish as everything blended It's like together. a diaspora sandwich. Exactly. And we've seen this throughout all different movements of people, not just any type of diaspora, you'll see that. However, I think for me, like it came down to, I started cooking with these women, following around them, following them in their kitchen with measuring cups and a scale because no one measures anything. And that's the same for, for wherever the background is, that generation that's just like eyeballing everything. However, at the end of the day, the blending is unique to me because this is my perspective of Jewish food. I can only speak to my experience. One thing that I will I will mention that has really become emotional is this idea that while we might not have that personal connection to a lot of these dishes, the thing that we do have are the same rituals. So while I might not have grown up with Tadi Gorgor Masabzi, when I start to experience them in the context of them at my Passover Seder, all of a sudden it becomes a lot more real. It becomes a lot more connected. When I was in Israel last, I had the privilege of having an incredible meal at Balanjira, this, this really awesome Ethiopian restaurant in Tel Aviv. And the chef is the aunt of a uh, Black Jewish activist. Her name is Ashagar. Oh, I follow her on, on Twitter. Yes, I love her. yes. And she was telling the story of her aunt who grew up in Ethiopia and every year they would have Passover and you end like next year in Jerusalem. And what she told the story that one night she was woken up by her mother. We have to go. We have to go. Where are we going? We're going to Jerusalem. And they talk through this, this kind of march through through the desert that Ethiopian Jews had to do. And, and, in making Aliyan and how terrified she was and these giant metal birds coming out of the sky because she'd never seen a plane before and them landing in Israel and kissing the ground. And the first thing that she said was, was the most shocking part about coming to Israel was that she had never, she had no idea there were white Jews. And that was, I mean, I was crying, like all this stuff. And it's because of the fact that we are such a small community, but we are so spread out. And the more that we can do to find those moments of connection to all of us, because we are truly all part of one community, is so crucial. So there's an organization here called the Jewish Arts Collaborative, and they do a food event every year called Beyond Bubby's Kitchen. And one year, I was just a bunch of local restaurants making Jewish-inspired dishes. And the first year I went, I was like Sephardi-themed, I think, and somebody made a dish called Cosido, which I had never heard of it before, but upon looking at it, it was something that my Egyptian grandmother would make 
all the time and that I make myself. It's just chickpeas, spinach, and tomato. And I was like, wait, oh my God, like, what's this doing here? And it was, and then another table had Bespusa, which I didn't know anyone else had ever heard of. So it was just so shocking to me to like see this out in the, you know, broader community, because like you said, we are all connected in that way. But something that I found really funny about what you just said was you've been chasing your mom and your mother-in-law around the kitchen with measuring cups and spoons because nobody measures anything. And I think that is part of the magic of generational cooking. It's part of the magic um, of home cooking in general. You went to the Culinary Institute of America. You're a trained chef. What's it like balancing your formal education with family recipes and methods? So I think it comes down to indoctrination in America of what good food is or what food of value is. And I was actually, right before we started recording, I I met up with a friend of mine from culinary school who is now opening a a bagel shop in Chicago. And, And the idea behind our training was that you have to go, you want to, the, the goal is fine dining. I went to a three Michelin star French restaurant straight from school. And, and that is good food, European food. Like this is fancy food, white tablecloth, all of that. That is good, fancy food. We are eating shtetl food. And it's, it's truly all marketing and anti-Semitism in the sense of, of what is what is good, what is not. And yes, part of it is that the fine dining restaurant sphere was invented in Europe. And that is just part of their culture. But the way that we have created a society that reveres it to another level and then downgrades other restaurants that represent cultures that did not have that is, I just think, stupid. Because really, (laughs) like, we are, like, I think there's just as much importance and promise and technique in making a perfect matzo ball soup as there is anything else. Another example, gefilte fish. Everyone hates on gefilte fish. If you get a really well-made gefilte fish, and there are some incredible ones, I'm not talking about the crappy jarred stuff, you get a really beautiful homemade gefilte fish. Why is that considered poor people food, yet like a fish terrine in a fancy French restaurant is going to be part of a $300 tasting menu? It's the same. What a good It's the same idea. It's just like how we think about it. And to me, I think that we need to turn everything on its head, especially when it comes to these dishes that was that were just pioneered by by groups of women in societies that held them back other than the kitchen. And to be able to celebrate them and what they've done to bring our culture across seas through war, through genocide, that is a miracle. Amen. You are known for hosting pretty big Shabbat dinners, and you're also on the board of One Table, an organization that aims to empower people who don't yet have a Shabbat dinner practice to build one that feels authentic, sustainable, and valuable to them. What's the magic of Shabbat dinner and why is it so important for you? It's something that I would have never, again, I I couldn't, I didn't even know when I started the book that I would be like here in terms of my connection to Judaism. And it was the same thing with Shabbat. My husband and I, we didn't grow up hosting Shabbat. And still like the big thing is like, I'm not kosher. I'm not turning off my phone on Friday, all this stuff. That that is makes me again to many Jews. I get messages like you're a goy. You're not. You're you're 
terror, like all this stuff. People hate, 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 hate. But Shabbat to me is is something in which I kind of first felt a connection to identity on a deeper level when you think about Jewish values and the person who kind of put it, the it really kind of resonated the most in my Friday ritual is I make my holiday and I listen to the study, an incredible podcast hosted by Raviv Allman, who you might remember as Phil of the Future from Disney Channel. In one of his latest episodes, every week they go through whatever the parshot is, but in a modern lens and they have everyone from like, Two weeks ago, they were talking about Passover with Alana Glazer to yeah. everything. And they were talking about sacri- like they were getting to the part the parshot parshot where they're talking about like the different sacrifices and the ideas around kind of like all of the rules that we have to follow in the temple. And something that came up was the idea that because of the rules of Judaism and the idea that everything that is gifted to us from God has to be given back. Through sacrifice, through through all of all of these these rituals, it has created a communal feeling and a communal set of values that whatever is given has to whatever is received has to be given. And you think about that in like welcoming in the stranger, sadaka, all of these aspects, these kind of deeper understandings and conversations around how so much of Torah and like old school Judaism has trickled down through generations. And what I would think about it, and the first thing that came to my head is how growing up, my aunt, anytime we got a birthday present, bar mitzvah thing from any of her friends, how much did they give you? Because I need to give that to her nephew or her her son. And it was always this idea that like, and and I would, you would never, would you ever show up to someone's house empty handed? No. 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 But there's so many times and it's, it's, my husband says I need to stop saying it, but like there are just things that a Jew would never do that because it would just be t- it would make me too uncomfortable to do so many of these things because of so much of our value system and how it's been instilled in us. And and to me, seeing that and seeing Shabbat, which is something that is truly just meant as a moment where you get to unplug, be present with your loved ones, and have a great meal, drink wine, the, the meanings behind those prayers. It's, it's, yeah, you have to say the prayers because that's the tradition. You don't really have to because really what it is, is you're lighting the candles to, to just signify that this is the moment of the Sabbath that you're going to rest. The wine is sanctifying that you're taking something mundane and turning it holy. And then the bread is because that's how you break bread. That's how you put intention behind being present and sharing a meal with others. It's not a meal without bread. So much of what we do in our lives is dictated by Jewish tradition, Jewish ritual, and Jewish value. It wasn't until that I re-welcomed some of that ritual that I really could see that as an adult. And I think it became a snowball of wanting more. And not necessarily more religion, not necessarily more God, but I wanted more understanding of our rituals and the reasons behind them because so many of our rituals are so rooted in that act of community and communal thinking whether that be the family friend community local community so 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 much of it is rooted in like old school torah and i think that that's the most exciting part of 
everything that I do is getting to look at it and see what I want to keep and what I want to get rid of because it is not necessarily applicable in today's world, which a lot of it is not. Well, after 4,000 years, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there's yeah. something truly beautiful about what you're saying about learning more about the origins of these traditions um, in the Torah and the Talmud, etc. Like I'm I'm reading the Talmud right now and studying it in a process called Dafyomi and, and the second tractate is about Shabbat. And then you find out, you're like, oh, this is the source. This is why we do ah, all these things. But like the takeaway for me after I stopped being religious, I was religious for a time and I stopped, is that there is sacred time. That's something that we can keep. You don't have to, as you said, invite more God in necessarily, but there is something sacred about setting aside that time and spending it mm -hmm. with your family and your loved ones and just being so present in that moment that's so special and unique and adds such a quality of life that I think a lot of people are looking for now because we're constantly just crazed, busy, yeah. so overwhelmed all the time. And what Shabbat kind of does is says is put boundaries on that. Yeah. And that's what one table really did for me. They were what I want to do is help through them give people that same permission that they gave to me that like, no, actually you are Jewish enough. These are the beautiful rituals that you've inherited and you get to do it on your terms versus a lot of my life feeling otherized mm. within the community itself. And I think a lot of that comes when I, I'm gay. At the end of the day, I'll never be able to be part of the Orthodox community because of it. Whether they say they accept me or not, it, it it's not there. And the same thing can be said for a lot of women who want more. And I just think that having that permission, having that tie, having that connection to Judaism, and, and that's why like I think One Table is the most incredible organization ever, because it's helping really create a sustainable preservation of Jewish ritual for a new generation of Jews. And that's something that we got to see. And I say it all the time. So many people, including family, I mean, she's going to hate that I, I bring this up. But we, I had a big riff with my sister-in-law for a while because she wouldn't come to Shabbat because they, they were under the impression that I'm going to make her daven. That this is some really, that she's not like, that she's like, oh, I'm not that religious. Like, that's not the point. Right. And a lot of people come and I get invited to Shabbat and think that it's something else. Because of the way you aren't going to put her behind the message. Exactly. Like... They, because they think that we've been coded to think a certain way about what it means to be Jewish or to practice Jewish ritual. And, and it ain't that it can be that if that is if that is what you want and that's what works for you. God bless. But not for me. And, and, and one table put it perfectly early on. And there was a comparison with Shabbat where. Yoga was a Hindi practice that now everyone does because they realized it's good for you. Shabbat is the same way. It's an act of self-care. There is nothing like there's nothing that's going to hurt you about unplugging and having Friday night dinner with your loved ones uh, and building community around it. It's, whether you want to say the prayers, whether you want to say the prayers in English or Hebrew, whether you want to say poems that kind of signify the, the meanings of these rituals instead, all of that is on the table. What isn't on the table is 
turning a blind eye or not turning a blind eye, just turning away from it because you don't think it is for you because it's tied to something that has been coded in your head as being super strict and orthodox. One of my favorite memories from college was I had two friends who would invite me over for Shabbat dinner like every month or something. And it was just, they became more religious and I was not very, but it was still, you know, we did say the prayers and it took me a couple of times to remember that like you can't talk after doing the hand washing blessing because I would talk and I would just be like, oops. <laughs> but, you know, it was one of my favorite years in college because there was such a warmth and communal feel and it just felt like family. It was just truly, truly wonderful. So I want to know, after after launching this book, having it be so successful and you just launch it, so it's so new still and you're still in the promotional phase. So I know this may be jumping ahead a little bit, uh, but what projects are you excited to get into next? So the number one project is me, just because like I'm taking after this past year and putting so much work. I, I really put my head down during the entire pandemic to just focus on my career that it's super, it's super bittersweet that the book came out right before we are now coming out um, in the next month or so, but there will be like the, a lot of belated things. So I'm going to take the summer mainly just to enjoy and have fun, but there's another book in the works and it's going to be Jewish and it's going to be amazing. And it's going to be it's a lot. There's a lot of, of things that I want to do and I will do it all. But with time, I'm not someone who I've always been very clear that I don't need to rule the world. I think I, I'm not looking to be a mogul with, I, I don't need an empire. If an empire happens, great. But like, that's not my goal. My goal is to have right. a community of engaged people and I can make a living and just have fun with it. Yeah, you can build an empire in the fall. Exactly. You can exactly. just that's take a winter, the That's a winter off. thing. That's like <laughs> take cold. You can't leave the house in the winter anyway. Right, right, yeah. right. <laughs> well, Jake, thank you so much for joining us today on the Vibe of the Tribe. This was so much fun, and we just had such a joy talking to you today. My pleasure. Want a taste of Jake's cookbook, Jewish Reinvented Recipes from a Modern Mensch? Check our show notes for a link to one of his recipes that can be hot and fresh out your kitchen and everything bagel galette. You can and should follow Jake on Instagram and TikTok at Jake Cohen. And while you're at it, you can follow us on Instagram too and Twitter at Jewish Boston. Yes, despite my very best efforts, we're not on TikTok just yet. Hang on for that. As always, thank you to our editor, Jesse, and thank you everyone out there for listening. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe to The Vibe of the Tribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay safe, wear a mask, and cook up some delicious recipes. Mm-hmm.